0: We are continuing our study on the doctrines that are in our statement of faith. And last time, we looked at the person of Jesus Christ, that he is both fully God and fully man and will be forever, and that he needs to be that in order to be our Savior. So today we're looking at the saving work of Jesus Christ, and this is part one of two messages. The second one will be on Easter Sunday. Today we're asking the question, How does Jesus save? What was accomplished on the cross? Why did he need to go there? What what transacted with him um, hanging on the cross, dying? That's what we're going to be talking about today in, in some detail. And we have an answer for that question in Isaiah 53. We're going to be reading starting 52 verse 13 all the way through the end of 53 And what we're reading here is known as the fourth of of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There are these descriptions of this servant of the Lord. He's unnamed because this is 700 years before, before Christ, but there's this servant who's going to do God's will, and he's going to save God's people. And so we're reading the last one of those four servant songs. So let's begin in 52 verse 13. We'll go all the way through the end of 53, and then I'll pray. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, And as for this, his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. There are wonderful things here, too great to be told. In one sermon or many sermons, but Lord, we ask that you by your spirit would visit us today with clarity, with new sights of the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that you touch our hearts, not just our minds, not just intellectually, though certainly that will be exercised, but Lord, give us great love for Jesus as we recognize what his love really involved. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) A few years ago, a controversy erupted in the broader church. It was reported on in USA Today. I was made aware of it through the documentary American Gospel, Christ Crucified, which I know some of you have watched, and I hope all of you will see it at some point. Here's what the controversy was. The Presbyterian Church, United States of America, PCUSA, they wanted to include a song in their new hymnal, In Christ Alone is the the song song that they were looking at. And the original song was written by Stuart Townend, and it contains the lyric, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied a Baptist hymnal had changed the lyric to, "'Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified.'" That's the version the PCUSA wanted in their hymnal, and they supposed that the change had been approved, so they requested permission to put that in their hymnal. What they didn't know is that the change had not been approved— by the authors, they were told by the copyright holders they could only include the song in their hymnal if they kept the original lyric, the wrath of God was satisfied. They were unwilling to do this. Why not? One, PCA, one PCUSA pastor explained it this way. He said, that lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. So the song was omitted from the hymnal. Here's why I bring this up. It reflects an uneasiness with, if not an outright rejection of, the teaching that Jesus died on the cross bearing God's wrath for our sins in our place. That is known as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning it deals with a penalty for sin. Substitutionary meaning the penalty is paid by a substitute. And atonement meaning that the payment successfully restores the sinner to God's favor. That's the doctrine that's reflected in the song, In Christ Alone, when it says the wrath of God was satisfied on that cross where Jesus died. And it is how the church has for centuries understood the simple gospel from 1 Corinthians 15:3: Christ died for our sins but it's being denied and attacked by many today. Evangelical author Stephen Chalky called it a form of cosmic child abuse. Atheist Richard Dawkins said, It is so deeply nasty that it deserves to be savagely ridiculed. That resonates with many people, actually. I think especially a younger generation that's rethinking the Christianity that they inherited from their parents or that they've heard about through some other source. It doesn't seem like a loving God could or would pour out his wrath on his own son for sins that he didn't commit. That doesn't sit very well. And so there's a lot of new thinking, new writing, and outright denial that he actually did that. So what I hope to do this morning is show from Isaiah and from other texts that penal substitutionary atonement is not only true, it is the greatest display of God's love that there is. In fact, I think without this understanding of the cross, it will be very hard to say what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.8. He said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I don't think we can get our heads around that, that Jesus is better than anything if we don't see just how deep his love is and how great his sacrifice So I think that's what we need this for. So let's see what Isaiah says about this. First, let's establish that Jesus is the servant that is spoken of in this passage. This is about him. The person described here shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. So he is one who's going to rise above all the rulers of the nations. He's going to be renowned worldwide. And yet he comes from humble beginnings. He grew up before the Lord like a young plant. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. And in between the humble beginnings and the mighty exaltation, he has to go through extreme humiliation and suffering he was despised and rejected by men. His appearance was marred beyond human semblance. He was pierced, he was crushed, and he accepted this treatment without resistance like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. And his final suffering was death. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He poured out his soul to death. He received this death sentence, condemned as a criminal, numbered with the transgressors, considered as one of them. There can be no doubt that that's a description of Jesus Christ. He was born in a lowly cattle stall, who grew up in a small town, called Nazareth, who was rejected by his own people, Israel, who was mocked and spit upon and beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross between two criminals condemned as a blasphemer. And yet this same Jesus would be high and lifted up resurrected from the dead, vindicated, ascended to the Father's right hand at the heavenly throne where he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. And if that description of his life in the Gospels is not enough supporting evidence, we also have direct quotes of Isaiah 53 by, by Matthew, Luke, John, Peter, and Paul. All of them saying that Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. That's described here. And he's the one who saves his people, as we'll see. So how does he do it? We'll describe it with four words. Some of these are big big words, but i will explain. Propitiation. We need to know that word. Substitution, imputation, and union. We'll explain each of those. Each one is part of the glory of the gospel. The first word is propitiation. Propitiation, in its simplest definition, means the turning away of anger or wrath. When the Bible speaks of it, it says two things. It says, one, that our sin provokes God's wrath, and that the death of Jesus is the means by which this wrath is turned away from us. The concept is in Isaiah 53, but the word is in Romans 3.25. So we're going to start with the Romans verse and then work backwards to Isaiah to flesh it out. Paul says in Romans 3.25 that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That statement comes in the context of the first 3 chapters which speak about God's wrath for sin on a humanity that has rejected him. For example, Romans 1:18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul's argument is that all of us have sinned, we've all committed offenses against God. And that our sin is something that provokes God's righteous anger and wrath towards us. God is opposed to sin because God is holy and He is opposed to all that is evil. There are 580 references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. So it's not just a side topic Israel knew if they didn't know anything else, they knew one thing. God is opposed to sin because those 580 references, God's wrath is against sin. It is against all ungodliness. It is against all unrighteousness of men. Israel knew that 580 times. (laughs) One thing arises, arouses God's anger, and that is sin, which is any violation of his good and perfect will. And we've all done it. So there's a penalty to be paid for sin. There are amends to be made in order for God's anger to be turned away. And the good news in Romans is that God himself is the one who makes amends. The injured party comes towards the offender, and he's the one who sets it right. Because that's what Romans 3.25 says. He put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation. Jesus comes as the one who turns away God's wrath from us by dealing with the offense that our sin has created. How? Paul says, by his blood. He gives his own life in payment of the penalty we deserve. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's what needs to happen to turn away God's wrath. Death is the appropriate punishment for sin according to God. And Jesus bears it for us to be received by faith, Paul says. And that turns away God's wrath. Or more specifically, it turns away God's wrath from us because Jesus bears the wrath. He absorbs the wrath. He is the object of the wrath instead of us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to the Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What cup was he referring to there? The cup in Jeremiah 25.15? Where God says to the nations, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what he knew in the garden he was about to do. That's what he did do on the cross. He drank the cup of wrath for us. Bore God's wrath to propitiate Him, to make Him favorable to us, to turn away His wrath from us. We see this. We see propitiation in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. The piercing of the nails directly addressed our transgressions. That's what the piercing was for. It was to deal with the offense of our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We are, made, we are made to be at peace with God because of the chastisement of Jesus. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him, it says. He has put him to grief. This is God's doing. This is God putting forward his son as the one who will turn away his wrath from us by bearing that wrath in himself. This is Isaiah 53 and Romans 3.25. They are the same. And the result for us is forgiveness and restoration. He makes intercession for the transgressors. God is propitiated. He is satisfied. Yes, the wrath of God was satisfied. Keep that lyric in the song. Now, this has been a comfort to believers for centuries, but not a few people have a problem with it, and one reason is because of how we might think of God's wrath. The picture that some might have in their mind is of this egocentric God who flies off the handle if he doesn't get what he wants, And goes into this rage and starts wreaking havoc. And so you've got to throw a virgin into the volcano to to sacrifice to this raging God in the hopes that it'll placate him and make him calm down. That's how people think about God's wrath. That's the kind of imagery that's used against him by some of the people that I've mentioned. And that isn't at all what God's wrath is. God's wrath, if you're willing to accept it, is actually an expression of his love. You say, what? (laughs) Yes, that's right. It is. Wrath is how love responds to evil. The loving person cannot be indifferent to wrongdoing and to evil. You would not be indifferent... If a bully attacked your child and they came home bleeding and crying. You would not be indifferent if your child bullied someone else's kid and did that to them. You ramp that up to other evils like enslaving people with drugs or human trafficking or genocide of an entire people. A loving person cannot be indifferent to those things. Something has to be done to address the evil. We know that. We feel justified in being angry and seeking some punishment for the evildoer. And yet, many people don't want to think that God has that response to evil. As if He couldn't be genuinely loving and wrathful. But we can be. We're made in his image, and he is that way. Because he is genuinely opposed to evil and he genuinely loves the good and he hates it when people wreck the good. As he should. You couldn't worship him if, worship a God like that, a God if he didn't do that. <clears throat> Wrath is God's appropriate response. To evil, to use another picture, God's wrath is a measured response to evil from a just judge who carries out an appropriate sentence. I was in a courtroom once at the sentencing of somebody I know. His crimes were real. The evidence was there. The punishment was deserved. When the judge handed down the sentence, it was 10 years in prison. He was clearly angry. But he wasn't out of control. He gave the sentence that the law demanded for these crimes. No less, no more. Well, the sentence for sin in God's courtroom is death. It is the outworking of his just wrath. That is the appropriate sentence. And that's what needs to be turned away from us if we are to be saved. And this is what Jesus does. He propitiates God. He turns away his wrath by taking it on himself. The penalty is paid to be received by faith. Let's look at the second word for how Jesus saves, for what he did on the cross. The word is substitution. Substitution. We've already been assuming this and what we've been hearing here but it deserves a special focus. Substitution, in the general sense, means replacing one thing with another. And when it comes to Jesus' saving work, it means Jesus takes our place as the one who bears God's wrath. He dies for our sin as our substitute. God's wrath was not just turned away, it was satisfied by pouring it out on a substitute, someone who stands in our place as that guilty party. And we see that kind of substitutionary language throughout Isaiah 53. The servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was stricken for the transgression of my people, it says. That's the language of substitution. They they weren't Jesus' transgressions. They weren't his iniquities. They were ours. He was pierced, crushed, and stricken in our place for the punishment due to us because of our sin. He substitutes as the one who is considered guilty and receives the punishment. That concept of substitution is behind all the sacrifices in the Old Testament. The sin offerings, the guilt offerings that the priests would offer up day after day after day for the sins of God's people, they were substitutes for the one presenting the offering. But it goes back even before the sacrificial law. It goes back to Exodus 12 where you see the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. There were ten plagues that God inflicted on Egypt. Israel had no fear of the first nine. Um, They weren't in danger at all of being afflicted by boils or hail or by deep darkness. None of that stuff was ever going to touch them. But the tenth plague was different. The tenth plague was that every firstborn of the land of Egypt would die. But the people of Israel were not exempt from that plague unless they did something to avoid the judgment. And Exodus 12, 21 to 23 tells us what it was. Here's the command. Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of the house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts the lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you you see the destroyer would destroy the firstborn of israel unless they kill a the passover lamb And put its blood on the doorposts. The Passover lamb is sacrificed as a substitute who dies in their place that they might be spared. Why? Because although the Lord was judging Egypt for their oppression and their enslavement of God's people, Israel wasn't an innocent victim. They also had their sins. Their own hearts had turned away from the Lord, which becomes obvious once they get into the wilderness. The Passover lamb was slain for their sins as a substitute who bears their guilt. And Paul says, that is why Jesus died. He said in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our substitute who is slain so that the destroyer does not destroy us for our sins. Or as Isaiah 53 says, that he was pierced for our transgressions. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Our guilt. He's the lamb who dies for us. And this is the greatest act of love that there is. And this is what we need to get into our bones if we would count everything as loss because of knowing the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. If we're going to be moved to love him above all other things. For John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lays down his life for his friends. Which is what he did. He dies in the place of another. That's substitution that's bearing our penalty. Jesus does this in your place, believer. Specifically you, personally you, motivated by love for you. That's why he did this. That is so much deeper and so much more intensely personal than any of the less offensive explanations of the cross that are being offered instead of this. Denying the wrath-bearing death of Jesus It is true that Jesus accomplished more than a propitiation, but the other things that he accomplished depend on the propitiation for them to happen. Some examples, some say that Christ's death was just a way in which God showed how much he loved us by identifying with our sufferings, even to the point of death. So, you die, you suffer, I'm going to come, and I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, so that you can relate, and you can see that I, I know your world and I'm there for you. and that's all that it is. Now did Jesus identify with our sufferings? Absolutely he did. <laughs> Hebrews 2:18, because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So yes. He wants us to know that we identify, that He gets us, that He knows our pain and our temptation and our suffering. For sure He did that. In Jesus, we have a God we can relate to, and His suffering helps us in our suffering. But was that all that it was? Just as an example. We'll back up to Hebrews 2.18. Here's why He had to suffer. He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. His propitiation is what turns God's wrath from us and that's what helps us to know that when we're tempted and we're suffering. God is for me. Though I am suffering, though I am tempted, there is is peace between me and God. Another example, some say that Jesus, what he did on the cross was he overcame the hostile powers that hold humanity in subjection. He gained victory over devil and sin and death. This is called Christus Victor, Latin for Christ is victorious. So it's about liberation of victims more than it is about, or even instead of being about, forgiveness of sinners. Now, did Jesus overcome the devil, sin, and death? Yes, absolutely he did. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That's Colossians 2.15. He came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives, Luke 4.18. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, Hebrews 2.15. He did all of that, but how did he do that? How did he triumph over these things? Back up to Colossians 2.14. It was by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. That's the only way he can liberate captives who are captives because of their sin. They're not just victims. We are perpetrators. We are not just in a concentration camp wrongly confined there needing to be liberated by the allies. No, we're the guards in the concentration camp who need to be forgiven. Jesus triumphed victoriously by propitiating God through the payment of the penalty for our sins as our substitute. Penal substitutionary atonement is behind all the other saving aspects of the cross. It is what it means that Christ died for our sins. It's the heart of the gospel, and without it, there is no gospel. And for generations, Christians have affirmed this and taken great comfort from it and written songs about it. Philip Bliss penned the, these words. You'll, you'll recognize them. In 1875, he put it this way, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah. What a savior. Now we aren't finished yet because there's an objection to all of this, and it is well founded on the surface. The, object, the objection, to put it this way, by one observer he said, the ideas of substitution or place taking are simply outrageous. In the legal realm, personal guilt is non-transferable. The punishment to be borne by any given person can, under no circumstances, be taken over and atoned for by another person. Saying legally, that isn't right. You can't do that. Or as Christ- Christopher Hitchens, another atheist, put it, he said, I can't take away your responsibilities. I can't say you didn't do it. I can't make you washed clean. In other words, if you're guilty, you're guilty, and nothing can change that. You actually did it. And no one can be rightly charged with your guilt. This is what leads some to call the atonement a form of cosmic child abuse, because we're saying God made his own son drink the cup of his wrath on the cross for sins he didn't commit. And that seems to be obscene and immoral. Something that we'd go to prison for if we did that to our children. In fact, God's own law denounces treating an innocent person that way. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination. It's a thing that you should be disgusted at, have hatred for, to condemn a righteous person as wicked or to justify a wicked person as righteous. But that is just exactly what Isaiah 53 seems to be saying. It is clearly that the Lord crushed the servant that he was smitten by God, that he was stricken for the transgression of my people, though he had done no violence, though there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was righteous, yet he was condemned. How can that not be an abomination? You see the tension. If you're not tempted to see that as an abomination, then you don't understand the genuine moral dilemma of Isaiah 53. Jesus is the only truly innocent person who has ever lived, and he was condemned as the worst sinner who ever lived. Millions of sins of other people poured onto him, assigned to him. That should strike us as a grave injustice. That should strike us as the greatest abomination ever committed on earth. And it would be, except for one thing which I'll explain in the third and fourth words, imputation and union. Imputation and union. Imputation means to credit or charge something to another person. When that something is not rightly charged to another person, then it is a violation of justice. It's an abomination if it justifies the wicked or if it condemns the righteous. But when that something is rightly charged to another person, then it is just. It's not an abomination if it condemns the wicked, or if it justifies the righteous. When it comes to Jesus saving work, there are two imputations at work here, both of which are righteously done, both are morally defensible. We see him in Isaiah 53:1 or 53:11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's the first imputation. And he shall bear their iniquities, the second imputation. First, Jesus, the righteous one, makes many to be accounted righteous. We aren't righteous. We are transgressors. But we are accounted or credited with the righteousness of the righteous one, as if we had lived his perfect life. And second, he shall bear their iniquities. He isn't a transgressor. There's no deceit in his mouth. But nevertheless, he bears or takes the guilt and the blame of our iniquities. He is charged with our sins as if he had done them. Now that sounds terribly unjust. And it would be, except for the second word, which is union. If there exists such a union between Jesus and his people, that he becomes legally, legally responsible for our sins, and if we can be legally justified in having his righteousness, then it all works. Then it's not an abomination. If there's this union of some sort, so that he can actually legally be car- charged with wrong, and we can actually legally be charged with right. Is there such a union? If there is, then that's the greatest news in the whole world. <laughs> Scripture says that union exists between Jesus and those who believe in him, those who receive him by faith. I'll point to just one text. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Now, we like to use this verse in weddings because it is about marriage. It's, a, it's an explanation of marriage, what it's for. But we can't miss what it says about Christ and the church, about Jesus and those who believe in him. There exists a union between believers and Jesus that is so close that the best analogy that we have of it is marriage. And in a marriage, each spouse legally becomes the owner of what the other one brings into the marriage. Forget about prenuptial agreements. We're talking about a good marriage here. You know, the prenuptials, like, if we get divorced, then I get to keep everything, and you get none of it. This is a good marriage we're talking about. Let's use an example. Suppose a wealthy prince marries a woman with an enormous debt. She owes her creditors millions, and she could never pay it off. But he has billions, and he can pay it off no problem. The moment the two are united in marriage, her debt legally belongs to him. And his wealth now legally belongs to her. He didn't accumulate the debt, she didn't accumulate the riches, but because of the union, he pays her debt and she receives his riches. That is the union that exists between Christ and the church. He bears our sin and its punishment, we take on his righteousness and its reward, which is restored. Fellowship with God. And all of it is totally legal. It is not an abomination. Far from it. It's the greatest act of love in all of history. That this rich prince should come to us beggars, sinful beggars, and say, I'm going to take what you have and make it mine. I'm going to take mine and I'm going to give it to you. Freely. It's not cosmic child abuse. Because... Jesus actually became guilty of our sins in this union. And it is not an abomination because we are actually counted righteous in this union. 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes it this way. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The union makes that all legal. (laughs) What should really offend us about the cross is not that God would crush his innocent son, but that we transgressors should be counted righteous by it. That's where we should be. We should say, that's obscene, given who I am, to be counted with the perfection of Jesus Christ. But God did it. This is my love to you. This is my gift to you. You're perfect. <laughs> That's a thing of wonder. Because <laughs> that took Jesus to be rejected, mocked, spit upon, beaten, whipped, nailed. He had to bear our griefs. He had to carry our sorrows. He had to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He had to become a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That is love. That is true love. That is the greatest love, and it is a beautiful thing. And it is what it means that Christ died for our sins. That is the glory of Jesus Christ. And embracing it is how we come to love him in a way that would make us give up anything for him. I doubt that anything else will. Let me close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon from a sermon he gave in 1886. I think it speaks prophetically to us today. He said, If ever there should come a wretched day, when all our pulpits shall be full of modern thought, And the old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be exploded. Then there will remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing. Hushed will be forever those silver notes which now console the living and cheer the dying. A dumb spirit will possess this sullen world and no voice of joy will break the blank silence of despair. The gospel speaks through the propitiation for sin. And if that be denied, it speaketh no more. So friends, may your hope ever be in the old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice. That Christ bore in our place the penalty due our sins. That he might bring us to God forever. Forgiven and accepted. May that truth be. Comfort us in our guilt and give us hope in our despair. Let's pray. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Be honored in our hearts, Lord. Help us never to forget the doctrine of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Let's stand. So comforted by that, that truth. We have a God that proposes things that are absurd to the world, but I'm so glad for that truth. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, Tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, Nailed to a cross of wood, This the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross.